<laughs> and feel free to stand with me. The first thing I'll say is um, I'm, I'm not a poly scholar, so for anything that I say or do that is um, unskillful, I apologize in advance. And the, f the great thing is that I have plenty of poly scholars here to help me <laughs> uh, as, I, as I go through this. It's been such a rich day already, and I think there are several ways to approach this, but one, as an addiction psychiatrist myself, what I really want to do is uh, see how we can start uh, bringing this discussion into very pragmatic uh, realms. Uh, so how, how can what we're starting to bring together uh, be, play out in uh, everyday life? And in particular, um, I work primarily with underserved populations, people with addictions. And so this is one of my really um, longstanding interests is how can, how can what we learn uh, be helpful for everyone, I think, as, as somebody had mentioned earlier this morning. So I'm going to use the, this example of a, in medical school, we are um, forced to learn the, what's called the Krebs cycle or the citric acid cycle. And this is a, there's an inborn uh, disease uh, that's uh, genetic in origin in which there's an enzyme that prevents a molecule called pyruvate from being converted into acetyl-CoA. And this is, this is a primary energy cycle that's needed for generation of ATP and energy for, for cells. And when somebody has this deficiency, you can see by these arrows here, they show these large arrows. That molecule builds up and gets shunted to other pathways. So pyruvate gets turned into alanine and lactate and causes metabolic problems for people. And also they lose energy because they can't produce energy. So I bring this up because uh, one way that we can look at this, and we've been talking already a lot about dependent origination, is how do, can we understand cycles? Whether it's a cellular cycle that we can look at and understand how the mechanism of that cellular cycle works. And if we can understand that, we can then affect disease processes. We can understand the disease processes compared to before biochemistry was available. Uh, people would be born with this deficiency, and then um, there would be signs of uh, malnutrition and growth uh, stunting early in life, and they would have um, problems throughout life. As the, as the Krebs cycle was discovered, and the pathways were better known, and the enzymes um, known, when somebody had this deficiency, they could discover it and then say, okay, now we can start to affect a cure. Uh, so I think just thinking about this from a biochemistry standpoint just gives us a frame or a parallel that we can think about, or at least is one way that I think about um, dependent origination in particular, okay? So uh, I'm going to show you a Weight Watchers commercial. If you're happy and you know it, eat a snack. If you're happy and you know it, eat a snack. If you're happy and you know it, then your face will surely show it. If you're happy and you know it, eat a snack. If you're sad and you know it, eat a snack. 
If you're sad and you know it, eat a snack. If you're sad because you're angry, feeling down, or generally bad, if you're sad, eat a snack. If you're bored and you know it, eat a snack. If you're lonely and you know it, eat a snack. If you're sleepy and you know it, if you're guilty and you know it, if you're stressed, eat a snack. If you're human, eat your feelings, eat a snack. So I, I hear a number of different Vedana tones <laughs> with this. So it's interesting, Akinjano, that you brought up the fridge, right? This is the fridge that they've beautifully described in this very funny video. But what I'll argue is what they've also described is a pathway that we've already been talking about today. If you're, and I love the last line, if you're human, eat your feelings. Eat a snack, right? Eat your feelings. So dependent origination, we've been talking about this already today. So I'll just show a simplified diagram. You know, as Q comes into the mind, and gets interpreted, and we've been talking about pleasant, unpleasant, and neither pleasant nor unpleasant. So if we use the Weight Watchers commercial as an example, stressed, bored, restless, happy, sad, those cues come in, and those get evaluated. Oh, that's good, let's celebrate. Oh, that's bad, let's console ourselves through craving, right? Craving and aversion drives the behavior to eat in this case, which I'm, I'm just showing a simplified form here, but we've been hearing about tanha leading to, leading to upadana, which leads to birth. So in modern day, we think of the formation of a self through memory, right? If we don't have a memory, we wake up in the morning and it's difficult to remember the, literally who we are. And this gets reinforced. So this is the samsaric loop. Now it's interesting um, because this was described you know, way before 2,500 years ago and Weight Watchers is kind of, you can, they've really described this in a beautiful way, how that loop gets built and perpetuated, both the, the pleasant and the unpleasant and even if we think of boredom falling into the, the neither pleasant nor unpleasant category, all of those driving uh, similar behavior and then this reinforcement of self. In modern day, we have a we have a term for this, um, and you know we call it positive and negative reinforcement, right? So in modern day, there's a parallel to dependent origination that fits very very nicely. Some of the modern day terminology doesn't have everything, um, but it's got a lot. So one of the concepts that we use in modern day is subjective bias. So conditioned by previous events, we become subjectively biased to view the world through a certain way. In ancient times, they called that ignorance, right? So again, these parallels are pretty apparent. And of course, this habit formation and reinforcement, we can think of it as samsara, this endless wandering. So I think that this is really interesting that we see parallels in modern day with positive and negative reinforcement and in ancient times, dependent origination.
the there's an emphasis I'll just there's an emphasis here on the on the self and how this can um, this can perpetuate suffering here and I'll just use a quote from Alan Watts who said the ego the self which he has believed himself to be is nothing but a pattern of habit so we can think of this this reinforcement where we get attached to oh if I'm sad I should eat a cupcake so then I walk around looking when I'm sad, oh, I should eat cupcakes, wearing those types of, that, that subjective bias glasses, um, thinking that this will make me happy. And, and you just put it very beautifully earlier, it, it's so uh, stunning how the gratification is never, it, it can never be consoled, never be satisfied. I love the image of the hungry ghost that's described with that long, thin esophagus and this huge belly. No matter how much food we put in there, it can never satisfy. So if we look at a cleaned up version of this, um, you know, from a, a scientific perspective, this process is very, very well described. Uh, operant conditioning, right? Uh, Ed Thorndike published the first paper back in 1898 describing this process. B.F. Skinner became famous for this in the 30s. Eric Kandel won the Nobel Prize, showing that this is evolutionarily conserved all the way back to the sea slug. So a, a very well-known process. And if we understand, so if we go back to our biochemical uh, analogy, if we can understand how something works from a mechanistic perspective, we can affect change. So in, in my field in addiction treatment, um, there's this saying, if we can avoid people, places, and things. So if we drink and we avoid the bar, we avoid our drinking buddies, we're less likely to be triggered to drink. So that makes sense. We can look at the mechanism. We can say, okay, those cues, they're less likely to trigger the positive and negative affect. Uh, and you can even see neutral cures here where we, class, through classical conditioning, we, we associate like our car with smoking, for example, when smoking isn't necessarily associated with a car until we start smoking in our car. Uh, with smoking, it's hard to avoid those cues because we tend to smoke. Uh, for people that smoke, it's on their front porch, it's in their car, it's outside of work. So other strategies are brought in, such as substitution. So eat some candy, right? And you can avoid the smoking behavior. So you can see, interestingly, that this loop is not actually dismantled at its core. It's, we, can, we can prevent some of the inputs and we can also change the behavior. But the core loop itself isn't uprooted. And I say uprooted because if we look back at the Dhammapada, I love this, this phrase, just as a tree though cut down can grow again and again if its roots are undamaged and strong, in the same way if the roots of craving are not wholly uprooted, sorrows will come again and again. Yeah. So they really highlight getting at the core links in this loop. Uh, I like this modern day interpretation of uh, <laughs> this, but you get the idea, right? If we simplify this even further, what are the what are the necessary components? So you can think of a trigger, a behavior, and a reward. So if we're sad, we eat cupcakes, and we feel a little bit better, those are the elements. This is reward-based learning. And critically, the reward is what drives the behavior. I think that's a really important piece because a lot of emphasis and energy has put, been put in triggers and um, cognitively trying to change behavior, right? But if we look from a mechanistic standpoint, the brain doesn't work that way. 
the parts of the brain that are required to force ourselves to not do a behavior, that's the prefrontal cortex, it goes offline when we get stressed out, which is the prime, one of the primary causes for relapse. So we can't really trust the behavior changing, the forcing parts of our brains, but we can look in the mechanism and say, okay, what about reward? The other thing I'll highlight here is if we understand this process well, we can use it in, in different ways. And I'll just use this as an example, uh, food engineering, right? There's, a, there's an expose in the New York Times a couple of years ago. They design things, so this is Doritos. I like the, um, the Onion, the uh, satirical journal. They had a headline that said, Doritos celebrates its one millionth ingredient. <laughs> This is what they're doing, right? <laughs> Poor cookie monster. So, you know, and I, I say this tongue in cheek, but this is where if we can understand, if we can really bring awareness into the situation, we can start to uh, tackle this from a different perspective, right? And so I was really struck. Um, this was years ago now when we were, when we were designing our, um, one of our early uh, interventions for smoking cessation, I was reading one of the suttas and I was really struck by this phrase. I set out seeking the gratification in the world, whatever gratification there is, that I have found. I've clearly seen with wisdom just how far the gratification in the world extends, right? So you, you were getting at this earlier, I think, at Kinshino. It, it, we can never, it, it keeps spinning. But what if we start paying attention to what we actually get? How far does this gratification take us? And that's the question we started to ask. What if we started to tap into this reward-based learning process and had people pay attention to the rewards? So uh, we published a paper on this a couple of years ago linking the aspects of, of the seven factors of awakening to reward-based learning. But pragmatically, what we did was we had people smoke a cigarette mindfully, pay attention as they went into our, this is a randomized clinical trial. They didn't even know they were getting mindfulness training. So this is, this is people who are just trying to quit smoking. And this is what they notice as they pay attention when they smoke. This is an example. Mindful smoking smells like stinky cheese and tastes like chemicals, yuck. So this is a really critical piece. And I think this goes back to what the Buddha was talking about exploring gratification to its end. When we really pay attention to what's happening, cigarettes don't actually taste that good. And I've had people come in and they say, I've been smoking 40 years and I never noticed this. So 20 cigarettes a day for 40 years, that's a lot of times that they've been spinning that wheel. And then they pay attention and they're like, this is really crappy. Uh, so that's a, a that to me seems like a critical piece that then may feed back into feeling tone in Vedana. And we'll get, I'll come back to this in a minute. But the, um, I think Hafiz puts it nicely. He says, learn to recognize the counterfeit coins that may buy you just a moment of pleasure, but then drag you for days like a broken man behind a farting camel. <laughs> right? So this is about hacking reward and having that feed back into Vedana. Or as Yogi Berra puts it, you can observe a lot just by watching, right? So how well does this work? Uh, in our first study, 
we got twice the quit rates at the end of treatment and five times the quit rates of gold standard treatment by having people do this. So we can see this bear out tangibly in behavior. So this is in people who have not meditated before, who are not interested in meditating, they were just interested in quitting smoking. And by bringing them in through the doorway of their own suffering, and by bringing them in through the doorway of exploring gratification and then being able to have that motivate them to build mindfulness skills there, they actually affected uh, their behavior quite a bit. So this was, this was striking for us. And I don't have time to go into the, the details and they would bore you to death. But what I can say is that when we looked at the mechanism, uh, it does look like we we can affect the link between craving and behavior. And in particular, so we would train people uh, to pay attention to their craving, be with their craving, get curious about their craving, investigate what it feels like, and see if they can stay with those sensations rather than get washed, um, washed away by that, that urge to smoke. And um, mechanistically, it does, we have found that it does actually break this link. And so we're starting to see, and this may be what leads to these greater effects and, and where we see long-term, uh, at least at the four-month follow-up that I showed you, we see longer-term benefits. So I just, I'm gonna shift gears a tiny bit. As we were looking at this and, and understanding mechanistically and uh, how it works and seeing how this was, um, this was something viable, we looked to see how can we actually make this more accessible to people. And what I found at the time was that my patients were standing in the parking lot with a cigarette in one hand and what in their other hand? And not their coffee, their phone, right. So we said, can we actually package this into uh, bite-sized pieces and deliver it through their phone? This process, again, was probably set up so we'd remember where food is, right, classically. And now, you know, we use it as a way to learn to pair food with emotions or pair cigarettes with emotions. But this was a context-dependent memory pathway. It was set up so we'd remember, see food, you eat the food, you get that caloric hit to your stomach, it sends a dopamine um, signal to your brain that says, remember what you ate and where you found it. So can we deliver treatment in context? Right? People don't learn to smoke in my office, but they learn to smoke in the parking lot. They learn to smoke in their cars. So not that we're having them do these trainings while they're driving, but the idea is we can give them daily short modules every day as a way to start training them in this. And we can also build in uh, evaluative mechanisms to make sure that, uh, that, we are, that we are affecting change. So I just mentioned that because that's one way that we're starting to um, really try to make this uh, pragmatic. That's one of my uh, deep interests. So now I'm just going to shift gears a tiny bit because we started to notice that, um, so typically people gain about 15 pounds when they quit smoking. And often that's because of the, um, they substitute eating for smoking. But some of our folks were commenting, they said, you know, I'm actually changing my eating behavior. And that made us uh, open our eyes pretty wide because that's, they weren't eating more, they were actually uh, changing their eating behavior. And this is what got me into the whole eating thing. Uh, and I don't know if any of you can relate to this, but one of my patients actually brought this uh, card in. I thought it was hilarious. You know, like, 
do not panic, right? But we can get panicked when we, when we see food, especially if we try to, if we're on a diet or we're trying to avoid certain foods, we can get all caught up when we see that trigger and we start to panic and then fall into that um, process. We call it the abstinence violation effect because not only, you know, if we've been really good on a diet for a long time and then we eat one donut, our brain says, well, screw it, just eat a dozen donuts. And, there's, it, and that's so common, there's, there's a term called the abstinence violation effect for that. So we actually developed a second um, program called Eat Right Now where it works very similarly to the Crave and Equip program where we can deliver training based on helping people change their relationship to eating in the same way that we were doing this with smoking. And more importantly, we are looking from their behavior and from how they were describing this to see if they're actually uh, if they're actually living this out in the same way. So here's from one of the, people can keep an online journal as part of our um, training. They have an online community that they can interact with each other and with us on. So this is in somebody's words from their journal. They said, I understand why I go to food, to avoid or cover up or distract from uncomfortable feelings, such as anger, sadness, or restlessness. Who wants to feel those things? Trigger, uncomfortable feeling. Behavior, eat something that temporarily diminishes the feeling. Reward, still have to deal with the unpleasant feelings, plus the sugar headache. I can clearly see how I got caught in this habit loop trying to escape the difficult feelings with food, but that ultimately it doesn't work. So again, looking in for their own language for their description of becoming disenchanted with their behavior. And so we're, we're starting to see this. Now, we, we do clinical studies to make sure we're not fooling ourselves. And so we just finished a study uh, with a collaborator at UCSF. Uh, Ashley Mason was the principal investigator on that. And we found a 40% reduction in craving-related eating uh, when people use this program. So again, looking at the we first this is we looked first at mechanism. We want to see if we can affect mechanism, and if we can affect mechanism, that suggests that um, we can move forward with this. Otherwise, we need to scrap it or change it. So a 40% reduction was pretty remarkable, and also now gives us a second piece. Uh, that suggests mechanistically that mindfulness is helping at the level of helping people work with the craving and not move into behavior. So they can have a craving and not uh, get sucked into it. So I'm going to shift gears now and move, um, start to bring this together with neurobiologic mechanism. I'm going to, uh, some of you have heard me talk about this person before, but uh, for those of you that haven't, um, I'm going to start with a story because I think this helps illustrate it. So this woman is Lolo Jones. Uh, she uh, in, was an Olympic hurdler back in the 2008. She was favored to win the uh, hurdles in Beijing. And she was actually, she had made it to the finals. Uh, she was in the lead in the finals at, at the ninth of 10 hurdles. And I'll just read to you uh, something she said in an interview with Time Magazine. She said, I was just in an amazing rhythm. And then I knew at one point I was winning the race. It wasn't like, oh, I'm winning the Olympic gold medal. It just seemed like another race. And then there was a point after that where I was telling myself to make sure my legs were snapping out. So I overtried. That's when I hit the hurdle. So the critical piece here, and, and we'll link this back to Vaden in a minute, is this getting caught up in her experience. So it wasn't that she was thinking, it was that she got caught up in her thinking. And it turns out that, um, you know, if you think of this as an underperformance continuum, 
that we spend, there was a study that showed we spend about 50% of waking life daydreaming. So you can think of daydreaming as one uh, aspect of getting caught up in experience. But the nice thing about daydreaming is if somebody notices you're daydreaming, they say, hey, stop, you know, snap out of it, and we snap out and we're back paying attention. If you think of the continuum getting caught up, right, or clinging, um, stress is a little harder. It'd be great if we could just say, hey, snap out of it, don't be stressed. Oh, thanks. <laughs> that was great. Do that again. It doesn't work that way, right? We're caught up in stress. If somebody says, hey, stop being stressed, we might even get more stressed. And addiction's the far end of that continuum. You know, uh, I love the very simple definition, continued use despite adverse consequences. So most of my patients, um, they know that they're caught up in these behaviors that are ruining their lives and they can't do anything about it. So continued use despite adverse consequences. So there's a great example of, um, of being so caught up and having no, nothing that they can do to get out of it. So if this process happens so much, we can actually study it in the brain. And I'll show you one example of a, of a study that was just published last year, highlighting one of the brain regions that seems to be central to all of this. So this was a study of adolescents uh, where they put them, this, this was a study done at UCLA, and the researchers had these adolescents lay in the fMRI scanner and then view their own Instagram feeds, right? So they were looking at picture after picture after picture, and the only manipulation that the researchers made was to give some pictures a bunch of likes and some pictures not as many likes. That was the only manipulation they made. And what they found was that the nucleus accumbens, which is part of the reward excuse me, the reward pathway was activated. This is the same pathway that gets activated when we smoke crack cocaine, when we use heroin, when we smoke cigarettes, when we use alcohol. So every drug, every known drug of abuse activates the nucleus accumbens. So there was some reward pathway that was getting activated. And at the same time, they were activating the posterior cingulate cortex, or uh, um, part of the brain that's involved. It's one of the main hubs of this self-referential network. It's thought to be um, really key in self-reference. And I'll just walk you through a bunch of different, so we're going to unpack what this PCC actually is uh, correlated with. Uh, actually, I'm just going to list, let's see what's the easiest way to do this. I'm just going to list a bunch of different studies and then I'll summarize them all. So don't worry about every single one. But look at all the different types of things that activate the posterior cingulate cortex. So liking a choice that we made, feeling guilty, you know, you can see pleasant and unpleasant uh, Vedana in all of these, in all of these. So the question that we asked ourselves was what actually is the task of mindfulness training and how does it relate uh, to, to these different things? So we can, you know, on a very simplistic level, if we're getting caught up in things, mindfulness training might help us not get so caught up or not take things personally. Um, you know, don't, don't, get, don't get caught up in ourselves. And in the first, I'll just go through, through this quickly because we've published this a while ago and I can certainly send along the papers for those that are interested. Our first question was, well, are experienced meditators' brains different than novice meditators' brains? We just wanted to know when we looked across a bunch of different types of meditation, so we had them do breath awareness, loving kindness, and choiceless awareness, and then we looked across all three of those and said, how are meditators' brains different than 
uh, novice meditators. And the first finding, I can't show you because it was a non-finding. We didn't actually find any brain region that was increased in activity in experienced meditators. We were expecting them to have some brain region that was activated when they were meditating. And in fact, in our study, this wasn't true. But we did find that specifically, you can see here that the posterior cingulate cortex was one of the very few brain regions that was deactivated in experienced meditators compared to novices. Blue means deactivation, less, activate, less activity. So this really um, pointed out to me how naively I was thinking about meditation, but also started to line up with a lot of different things. And one of them was that there's this theory around, so these two, these two regions you see here, the medial prefrontal cortex on the left and the posterior cingulate on the right, those are the two main hubs of the default mode network. And there was a theory that the medial prefrontal cortex is involved with the conceptual self. So when I get up in the mirror and I know, okay, this is Judd, and the uh, posterior cingulate cortex um, may be more involved in, at least our hypothesis is, is this experiential self, when we get caught up in experience. And uh, we did some uh, real-time neurofeedback studies that, that suggested that this was actually the case. So uh, the first thing I'll say is uh, it's really important as scientists <laughs> that, that we do many different types of experiments to make sure that we're not fooling ourselves. So our first uh, task was to one of my colleagues at Yale had developed this paradigm where we could actually give people feedback in, this, in the fMRI scanner, we can also do with this with EEG now, from specific brain regions in real time while they're meditating. And we can use this as a way to link their subjective experience with their brain activity so we can really see how these brain regions are, uh, are correlated with, with meditation and other brain mind states. And we can also do a bunch of control experiments, which I won't show you. I'm just going to show you, actually, Anderson Cooper came by and um, and, and donated his brain for this, and I'll show you what this looks like. This is just the next generation of exercise. We've got the physical you know, exercise components uh, down, and now it's about working out how can we actually train our minds. Dr. Brewer is trying to understand how mindfulness can alter the functioning of the brain. He uses a cap lined with 128 electrodes. We're going to start filling each of these 128 wells with conduction gel. The electrodes are able to pick up signals from the posterior cingulate, part of a brain network linked to memory and emotion. This is all just picking up electrical signal from the top of your head. Since attending the mindfulness retreat, I'd been meditating daily and was curious to see if it had an impact on my brain. We're going to have you start with thinking of something that was very anxiety provoking for you. Okay. When I thought about something stressful, the cells in my brain's posterior cingulate immediately started firing, shown by the red lines that went off the chart on the computer screen. Just drop into meditation. Okay. When I let go of those stressful thoughts and refocused on my breath, within seconds the brain cells that had been firing quieted down, shown by the blue lines on the computer. That's really fascinating to see like that. Dr. Brewer believes everyone can train their brains to reach that blue mindfulness zone. But he says all the technology we're surrounded by makes it difficult. Now, what's really interesting for us is we can collect a lot of very rich neurophenomenologic data from this type of experiment. I'll show you an example of how this works. So this is an experienced meditator. 
And um, what we had them do is, this, these are one minute periods of meditation. We had them, we actually cut it down to one minute because they were having difficulty remembering uh, what they were doing at the time because they tended not to lay down memory when they were just resting in awareness. So we gave them a baseline task where they were looking at these words to, um, to kind of induce a little bit of self-reference and then we just had them meditate on their breath. And here's an example of, of what they were, would re uh, were reporting afterwards. This person said, I caught myself, I was trying to guess when the words were going to end and when the meditation was going to begin, so I was trying to be like, ready, set, go, and then there was an additional word that popped up, and I was like, oh shit, and there's that red spike. So think of this in terms of, of Vedana and, and getting caught up. And then I sort of immediately settled in and was really getting into it. And then I thought, oh my gosh, this is amazing. It's describing exactly what I'm saying. Okay, don't get distracted, and I got back in, and it got blue again. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is unbelievable. It's doing exactly what my mind is doing. So he was laughing at the time. Um, he said, so I find it really funny, because that's a, the, the next question. That's a perfect map of what my mind was going through. And so while he found that fascinating, we also found it fascinating, but we weren't exactly sure what he meant by what his mind was going through. So this is actually where we uh, elicited uh, help from our colleagues. This is actually um, a study did, we did with Kathy Kerr and one of her um, undergraduates at Brown, Juan Santoyo, where we had poor Juan <laughs> transcribe all of our <laughs> experiments where he, he listened in a blinded manner. He didn't know, um, he didn't know what our hypotheses were, and we had him categorize all their people's descriptions. So you can see some of these, we call this raw data. So people describing tranquility, relaxation, focus on the body, focus on sensations, thinking about a place, thinking about an object. All of those went into these open codes that then were centralized and then moved into more theoretical codes. Okay, so for example, open awareness goes into not efforting, which is a more theoretical code. And then we could link these up um, in a in a blinded manner with brain activity. So here are some examples of activation in the posterior cingulate cortex. Distracted awareness, for example, activates, uh, the posterior cingulate cortex gets activated during distracted awareness, which was something that's been known for a long time. So we were kind of used, this was a great positive control for us. But there was this whole other category that came out of this that we were not um, familiar with, called, we called it controlling. So when somebody was efforting, when they were trying to do something, they were also activating this brain region. This was really interesting to us. Here's an example. I worried that I wasn't using the graph as an object, so I tried to look at it harder, or somehow, somehow pay attention more, right? So <laughs> think about this. If you, if you don't have difficulties hearing, you can hear my voice pretty well right now, right? It's not like you have to try to pay attention more. It just happens, right? At, we've been talking all day about sense contact and these things co-arising. Here's another example. So this is with deactivation. Undistracted awareness. This had been shown previously. Another nice positive control. And you can see 99 instances where people reported when they were concentrated, they were focused on their breath, on their body. There was clarity. This was correlating with deactivation in this brain region. But again, this, this surprise category came up for us that we just labeled effortless doing. So not efforting when they were content, when they were equanimous. Uh, they were reporting this. And you can see also uh, falling into this category was pleasure, which is interesting. And this is something that I'd love to discuss more. Here's some examples. Toward the middle, I had some thoughts, which I don't see on the graph, maybe because I kind of let them flow by. 
I noticed that the more I relaxed and stopped trying to do anything, the bluer it went. Of course, now this helped me understand the Yoda koan. Oh, try or try, <laughs> do or do not, there is no try. But just to wrap this up, if we bring this back to reward-based learning, I think this is really interesting. So we saw some examples of, uh, with smokers, with paying attention to the reward. What do I get from this? And seeing that the cigarettes don't taste so good, which helps change feedback and potentially change that the Vedana, the quality of that, oh, this isn't as pleasant as I thought, simply through seeing clearly, not, not doing anything cognitive to think about it. Where this comes back together um, with the brain activity is, you know, we can think of this generally, or at least one hypothesis that we have is we can categorize this, this caught-upness as, you know, this contraction that comes around, um, whether it's um, wanting some, more of something that's pleasant or wanting less of something that's unpleasant. And in this, in this sense, start to be able to not necessarily, um, you know, we, and we've already heard earlier that this stuff is pre, it's conditioned, right? But it, it gets reconditioned every time we spin this loop. So if we can affect the craving, if we can affect the pieces around the craving, especially um, upadana, so downstream here, I love, I'm glad, Akinshina, you brought up the, the translation of um, fuel and sustenance, because to me that's, that's a really critical piece and that's what we're seeing. If you think of cigarettes as fuel for that craving fire, each time we don't smoke a cigarette, that starts to die down a little bit. And so we stop feeding this. And another piece of this, um, and, we, or we, and we stop getting caught up in that, in that craving. I'm just gonna bring in uh, one of the, Another one of the suttas where, you know, there are a lot of fire analogies in the suttas. Uh, all is a flame, what all is a flame? The eye is a flame, forms are a flame, consciousness at the eye is a flame, contact at the eye is a flame, and what are the, whatever there is that arises, independence on contact at the eye, experienced as pleasure, pain, or neither pleasure nor pain, that too is a flame. A flame with what? A flame with the fire of passion, the fire of aversion, the fire of a delusion with birth eight, and then he goes through the rest of the sequence of dependent origination. So I think there are clues here about that fire and what fuels that fire. And I'll show you an example uh, from one of our smokers. He said, I'm somehow, I'm able to somehow ride out that craving pretty quickly. I think of it as some kind of a new habit loop. I go from wanting a smoke to either automatically recalling the bad sensations or automatically connecting the cigarette with more fuel for my addiction. So he's pointing out the upadana here, and he also may be getting at recalling the bad sensations. Huh, that's interesting. Is he hacking his Vedana here? Is he hacking his Vedana? So going on with the sutta, Seeing thus the well-instructed disciple of the noble ones grows disenchanted with the eye, disenchanted with forms, disenchanted with consciousness at the eye, disenchanted with contact at the eye, and whatever there is that arises independence on contact, experienced as pleasure, pain, or neither pleasure nor pain, with that too he grows disenchanted. So we can see the disenchantment potentially taking hold in Vedana, in this mental Vedana changing through direct uh, directly seeing and experiencing those rewards or the results. 
Now, I think there's another piece that comes in, and I think this came at the end of uh, Kinchino's talk. Are there ways that we can bring in pleasant Vedana? And this is interesting, too. So this is a person uh, who wrote, she said, I'm trying to figure out what I get out of binging. What's my reward? And she practices for a month, and she was writing in her journal in our community. And she said, binge eating was my emotional response. Eating took the place of feeling. Feeling was hard. Eating was not. Feeling felt bad. Eating felt good. So you can see this, this, this feeling tone here. As I begin to embrace emotions, I'm not as drawn to the fridge and the pantry. Emotions are more real and authentic and can be their own reward. At the end of a binge, I never felt good. When I breathe through the emotional pain or frustration or anger, I feel really good and calm, peaceful even. Now that is a reward. So she's even pointing this out in her own experience, a different type of reward. Here's one more example. What's most interesting to me is how we define the rewards. In the past, the reward of eating right had been weight loss, but it was more often than not short-lived because I hadn't made real process changes in my daily life. Here it feels like the reward is de defined differently and weight loss is a side effect. The reward here, for lack of a better expression, is a more balanced life or inner peace, okay? And so, and we hear about this type of thing, you know, the, the joy of concentration, it's much uh, more pleasurable than the, um, than the, uh, what are, how does it describe the ple worldly pleasures, right? The lowest level of happiness. And so just to bring all of this uh, to a conclusion, what, I, what I, I'm very curious to hear how this lands with you all is, you know, if we look at this from a, a mechanistic pathway, if we look at what fuels uh, craving and what actually conditions Vedana, can we actually hack that pathway simply by paying attention? So first, becoming disenchanted with those things that don't actually bring us lasting happiness or pleasure. And second, can we become more enchanted with those things that do? So does this naturally lead to the arising of Awareness, does this naturally support the arising or the conditions for the arising of concentration? Does this even support ethical behavior? As we start to see how painful it is to be a jerk, does that, do we become disenchanted with that? As we see how, uh, how pleasant it feels when we're truly generous to ourselves and others, does that naturally reinforce that Vedana, uh, which then, then, um, then drives that type of behavior? Importantly, from a, from a self-perspective, that contraction around uh, craving of getting things, those rewards typically are externally driven. So if I eat a cupcake, then I feel better, okay? External behavior that gives a reward. And as and you just you set my talk up so nicely, that, that anticipation, that, oh, that's the craving that drives behavior and it is never satisfied, right? From a brain perspective, that actually may be a, a good way to define the experiential self, right? That correlates with activation in this posterior cingulate cortex, that got getting caught up in experience. And all, importantly, that brain region gets deactivated as we move from contraction to expansion. So as we let go, there can be this joy that comes in letting go. We can also see that reward 
is an intrinsically or internally driven reward. Curiosity, for example, does it feel contracted or expanded? Expanded, right? So now we can move from a contracted type of driven uh, habit loop that's typically depend on, dependent upon something external to something that's more intrinsically rewarding and comes with a completely different feeling of that. So instead of excitement or any other type of contracted feeling, we can move to the joy that comes from loving kindness, from generosity, from curiosity or interest, if you think about the second factor of awakening that way. And those may, be, may drive themselves in a completely different manner, still using the same brain pathways, but in a way that doesn't depend on self. Because when we take this to infinity, where's the boundary between ourself and the rest of the universe? So I know I talked uh, a lot about a lot of different things. So I'll I'll just I want to first take a, make a deep bow of gratitude to all of our subjects that literally donated their brains uh, <laughs> for our studies and all of my collaborators uh, and our funding sources. Um, and if you're interested in reading more of the nitty gritty, I'm happy to. You can certainly. Um, I'm happy to talk more at meals. Um, or as Akinchino mentioned, I just published a book that outlines a lot of the science behind this. So I'm 20 seconds over. Sorry, Martine. Uh, I will stop there and be happy to take any questions. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.